All right, you guys, we're continuing our sermon series this morning, um, a prayer for the new year. We've been looking at Paul's prayer for the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 1. So let's grab our Bibles and head over to Ephesians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, not a problem. Go ahead and grab one off the seats around you. And in our Bibles, we're going over to page uh, 976, 976, and uh, we're going to be continuing to look at Paul's prayer in verses 15 through 23. All right, starting in verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things, to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The word of the Lord. You guys remember Gulliver's Travels? You guys know that story? Gulliver's Travels, many of you would have heard of Gulliver because of his, uh, most of the children's stories focus on his adventures with the Lilliputians, right? These tiny little people that, that he shows up, he's traveling, lands on this island, and, and there's all these tiny little people, and and they're at war with another island, and he ends up helping them, going and capturing all the other boats from the other island, and, and then they feel threatened by him, and, and the most famous scene is when he's laying, they're, they're trying to tie him down, right? He's laying on the beach sleeping, and they all show up, and they try to stake him to the ground. Anyway, it's a very famous kid's story, but it is not a kid's story. Um, <laughs> Jonathan Swift wrote it. It's actually a scathing satire of human nature, sociology, and culture. Um, and, and while it is uh, often translated as a kid's story or, or communicated as one, it, it isn't. In fact, Gulliver's being arrested here because there was a fire in the city, and, and, and Gulliver's only way of putting it out was to urinate on it, and so he was a giant fire hose putting out the fire in the city, which is part of the body humor that is often ignored in the children's part of the stories. Um, but here's the thing, in his final story, I mean, his final journey, because there's multiple story, journeys, the Lilliputian journey is, is the first. Uh, in his final journey, the fourth journey, um, he comes across uh, a race of near humans called yahoos. Um, and, and on this island, there are yahoos, which are these, these humanoid human creatures, and then the civilized creatures on the island are horses. And uh, I always call them whinnyhims, but it's like this just combination of H's, M's, and N's in such a way that I don't know how to really pronounce it. But, but this race of horses are the civilized ones, and, and the yahoos, or, or the human creatures, are um, pretty viciously described. They spend all of their time digging in the mud to find shiny stones. That's how they obsess. And, and, and when they find the shiny stones, they take them to their little hovels, and they bury them in the corners. And if anyone comes too near to them, they, they take their feces and they throw them at them. 
That's how they defend themselves, is by throwing their, their feces at other yahoos, at the horses, at Gulliver. Um, now, Gulliver, as he's visiting this island, is disgusted by the yahoos, of course he is supposed to be, and he finds himself um, really identifying with the horses, uh, talking with them, being impressed by their civilization, their, their, their advanced um, manners and culture, uh, but the horses see him as one of the yahoos. And Swift, as he is describing this, is really playing with irony. What he's saying, in a sense, is, is we're all yahoos, but we don't see ourselves that way. We see others as yahoos, but we don't see ourselves, right? Each yahoo is convinced that their shiny stones are actually worth hoarding. And each yahoo, as they're throwing their feces, really believes they're defending themselves, that that is, that is in fact, the best way to defend my, my honor and my savings and my identity. The yahoos uh, might see the idiocy of others, but they have no ability to see their own. Um, and, and, and here's the thing, Swift, in, in his satire, is, is scathing, but I think there's a lot of truth in it. Um, we're more like the yahoos than we'd like to admit. And we have the same problems that the yahoos have, right? We, we can't really see what is truly valuable. We get obsessed with shiny things. We, we chase things that we perceive of being great value. And then we defend it in ways that are um, despicable. We defend our little treasures. We defend our little kingdoms. We defend our little honors. Um, by flinging feces, by, by defaming others and attacking, by, by acting um, dishonorably. But we don't see it in ourselves. We see it so clearly in others. So here's the thing. We can't see what's truly valuable, what's truly worthy of our investment and protection. And that, I think that's exactly why Paul is praying for us, that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened so that we could actually see What's real, right? Now, over the last two weeks, we've been looking at verses uh, 16 and 17 um, and then unpacking this a little bit where, where Paul says, I don't cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, right? He's asking God, the Father of glory, to enlighten the eyes of our hearts, so that we can see, not just with our physical eyes, but with the eyes of our hearts. Because it's with our eyes that we see, but it's with our hearts that we assign value. Right? When Jesus came to earth, if he was standing side by side next to one of the religious leaders, Jesus, Scripture tells us, was, was nothing much to look at. Right? He spent a lot of the time on the road. He was, he was kind of a, a traveling vagabond at certain stages. Right? And, and if he were to stand there road-weary and, and dirty next to one of the Pharisees who is in their religious robes and, 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 and a full display of not just their physical wealth, but of the wealth of their knowledge and their wealth of their education. If you were to put these two men side by side, Anybody in that culture would have almost automatically assigned greater glory and greater value to the religious leader than to Jesus. They would have assigned a, a greater personal worth because of the eyes of their heart had not been enlightened. They, they saw with their physical eyes, assigned value with what they saw with it, and completely misread the situation. Jesus, the embodiment of the glory of God, 
was overlooked, misused, abused, because people did not see true treasure. We do the same thing. We do it all the time. We look at what our money can, can buy, what it can do for us, what, it, what we can invest it in. When we look at our time and, and decide what, what our time is, is, what it's worth investing and spending it on, we look at our energy and our talents and, and we decide what's worthy of the investment of our energy and our talents of, of, our, of our limited 24 hours every day. We are making choices based on what we see in our heart, not just with what we see with our eyes, which is why we need God to come in and enlighten the eyes of our heart. So, so that we can, in fact, invest our lives in ways that, that is worthy of the investment. So that we can see clearly what is worthy of, of chasing and winning. We can see what's worth spending our lives on. Now, last week we saw that Paul prayed that we might have our eyes enlightened in such a way that we could see the hope of his calling. That we might be motivated by true hope, because hope is the energy of the soul. Hope is what allows us to bridge the gap between what is and, and what can and should be. That we would be motivated by uh, His calling. This week, He's praying that we might have our eyes enlightened to true treasure, right? Taking a look at the next phrase in the prayer, having the eyes of our heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his, to which He has called you, and what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. All right, I want to unpack this a little bit. This is one of those really, really dense clauses that um, there's a lot of meaning wrapped up in here. And I think it's easy to read over it a lot of times and, and not even pay attention. So first of all, um, I want you to notice that the riches are in the saints. Um, he's talking about what is in the saints, which is an interesting phrase, right? So who are these saints and if you've been around the church very long, you may be asking, where are these saints, right? Saints is one of those words we use to describe people that are on, like, the graduate level of spirituality. You know what I'm saying? Like, they've, they're the ones that got it figured out, not like me, right? They're the ones that have their act together, not like me. They're the ones that have overcome all the, the weak temptations of the flesh. They're the ones that have, have ascended to some uh, transcendent spiritual level. They commune with God in a unique and special way that us mere mortals can only dream of, right? They're anything but normal Christians, right? They're some elite supergroup of followers of Jesus. All right, that may be our perception, but that is completely unbiblical. That is not what Scripture says. Um, a saint even though we, we assign it to a special group of people, right, like, like uh, St. Augustine, right? He's, he's somebody by his intellectual prowess has attained this super level. Um, scripture describes every believer as a saint. Uh, the word saint literally means one who is called out, one who is set apart. When you believe in Jesus, you are set apart by God for his glory. You are a saint, now, you may not behave like a saint. In fact, I know you don't. I don't know anybody who does, and Augustine didn't either, okay? If we mean by that that they behaved perfectly, because nobody, nobody's got their act together like that except Jesus, right? But, but if you're a believer in Jesus, you have been set apart for Jesus, right? Somebody who is, is holy, or excuse me, somebody who is a saint isn't set apart because they're holy. They're set apart to be holy, 
right? The word holy means one that is set apart. What is something that's holy? It's something that's set apart for, for a sacred use, right? A temple was simply a building that was set apart for a sacred use. Uh, an altar was simply a, a table that was set apart for a sacred use. You are a person, follower of Jesus, who has been set apart for a sacred use. Because you have believed in Jesus, you have been declared a saint, a holy one, set apart to God. Now, here's the thing. He sets you apart to make you holy, not because you are holy, right? It's not contingent on your behavior. It will change your behavior. You don't become a saint by, by becoming better. You will be changed when he declares you a saint because he begins a work in you. When he sets you apart for his glory, he also begins a work in you to change you into his glory. He sets you apart to do it. We looked at that last week a little bit in Philippians chapter 1, that he who began a good work in you will complete it. Right? He will complete it. That's what it means to be a saint. Not that you're performing for God, but that God is performing in you. Not that you're becoming holy for God, but that God is actually progressively making you into who you've been created to be. So that you can be what you were created to be, which is actually someone who looks very much like Jesus. So what that means, when he's talking about in the saints, what I want you to catch from this, he means us. Us. And all of our mess. It means you, follower of Jesus. Even if you're not a very good one. Because most of us aren't, most of the time. He means us, right? He means trailhead church. So what is in us, saints? What is in us, Trailhead Church? Well, specifically, he says, riches and his inheritance. So he prays that we will see the riches, the, the treasure that is in the church. Yes, there's something immensely valuable. In fact, immeasurably valuable in the church, in this group of people, right here, this humble, broken, jacked up, often really cool, often somewhat selfish, sometimes in line with what's right, sometimes not. In this group of people, there is something of immeasurable value. In fact, they're described as the riches of his inheritance. See, Jesus is going to receive an inheritance. Simply means that he has a a possession that is yet to be fully possessed. It's his but its full possession, its full realization of it is, is still in the future. He, he is awaiting the full possession of what is his by right. Because he died on the cross, because he rose from the grave, because he calls us to follow him and removes our guilt, and removes our shame, and covers us with his righteousness, and covers us with his record, Because he paid that price, 
He has an inheritance. He paid the price, and this is his prize. This is his prize. (laughs) It's kind of astounding when you think about it. And there are moments, honestly, where I look around in all sincerity and I ask, what is so valuable about us? What is so valuable about believers? You know, I told you a couple weeks ago that when I became a believer, I I was somewhat of a reluctant convert. Um, I had had previous experience with Christians, and most of it wasn't positive. Um, At one stage, my mom enrolled me in a Christian high school uh, to keep me out of trouble. I wasn't a Christian. And what I found in that environment is that Christians were really, really good at rewarding people who conformed and were really, really threatened by people who didn't. And so as long as you obeyed you, and you were nice, you won the Christian Citizenship Awards. But if you asked hard questions, if you pushed on things that needed to be pushed on or pushed on things that didn't need to be pushed on, if you were just wired to be a little more challenging you were seen as a threat. That was what shaped my um, early understanding of what it meant to be part of the church. The church were a bunch of people who wanted to follow rules, and as long as you followed the rules, you were patted on the back and you were celebrated. But if you asked hard questions, if you didn't want to follow the rules, you were seen as a threat. You were alienated and often punished in both formal and informal ways. It was a lot like yahoos. People building their kingdoms and deciding what shiny things were worthy of protection and attacking those who didn't value the same things. And I wasn't interested. As in my highly mature, self-developed 17-year-old self who knew all things worthy of knowing, I looked at that and thought, man, who wants that? Um, hmm. What makes that so valuable? You know what makes it valuable? It's that little word, glorious. It's that little word, glorious. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? It is a glorious inheritance. There are times, honestly, when I look at myself and I look around at the broader church, when I look at evangelicalism and I think, man, this doesn't look very glorious to me. And often it isn't. But here's the thing. When he describes it as a glorious inheritance, he's not talking about our glory. He's talking about his. See, God has buried his glory in the church. When he has called us to himself, when he has declared us his people, he buried his glory in the church. We're not a glorious inheritance because of our performance for God. We're a glorious inheritance because He has buried His performance for us in us. See, this is the beauty of the gospel. God didn't choose us because we were beautiful and we had it all together. He chose us to cover us with His beauty. He chose us to make us what we were not so that we might be for His glory. 
He declared us right. And then he set about the work of making us right. He declared us his glory. And then said, I will change you so that you actually reflect my glory. He buried his glory in us, and that glory will consume us, follower of Jesus. It will change us, it will free us, and it will bless us. He will once again have a people who reflect his glory. He will once again have a people who are humans as humans were created to be, living in humble dependence on him in the overflow of his goodness, reflecting his glory. See, when we look at the church, what we often see are are the broken parts. Jacked up people acting in selfish ways. Hurting people, hurting people. Because people in the church can be fearful and self-righteous and self-protective and self-centered. But I want you to see how we're described in verses 22 and 23. I want you to see how God sees us. In verse 22, when Paul is talking about Jesus in, 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 in being glorified, he says, and he, that is God the Father, put all things under his feet, that is Jesus, the conquering Savior. He put all things under his feet. And he gave him his head over all things to the church, the called out people of God, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I don't even know what that means. I mean, for real. The fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, I kind of get the idea of, of Jesus being the one who fills all in all, that his glory extends to, to the uttermost, that it is his power, his presence, his glory, his, his, his creativity, his, 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 his character fills everything. He created all things that it might be the domain of his glory. But what does it mean that we are the ones who fill the one who fills all in all? That we are his body? That's a weird metaphor, right? That Jesus, the, the one that, that John tells us in John chapter 1, is in fact the, the agency of all creation. The one through whom all things, if anything was made, it was made through the might of Jesus. The one who became man that he might walk among us, that he might so fully identify with us, that he could live the life we should have lived so that he might die the death we deserve to die, that he might rise again, that we might have a future we can never earn for ourselves. How, how do we fill this one? I don't know fully. But I can tell you that, that this sounds a lot like love. When I think about what fills me, I do a lot of things. I try to accomplish a lot of things. I, I put the, the energy of my hands to a lot of things. But if you ask me what fills me, it's not what I accomplish. It's not what I build. It's who I love and who I'm loved by. You want to know what fills me? 
It's love. It isn't my accomplishments. It's not my victories. It's my wife. It's my kids. It's my friends. And when I feel drained and exhausted, you know what fills me? Not more accomplishments. A deeper, renewed experience of love. When it says that we are the fullness of Him who fills all in all, it means that we are loved by the one who loves us to the infinite degree. And that in being loved by Him, we fall more in love with Him. And as we fall more in love with Him and experience more of His his love and His power and His glory, we are transformed by that love that we might look more like Him, the source and the originator of love. And we are changed from glory to glory. We are the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Jesus told a series of parables about the kingdom of heaven. Um, the kingdom that he was calling us into when we talk about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is where the king is, right? Jesus is the king and where the king is, there the kingdom is, right? And he said this in, in Matthew 13. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. You guys, Jesus is the wise man of this parable. He's the one that sold everything to buy us. He's the one that laid it all on the line. He's the one who held nothing back. He gave all that he had. He laid it all down in a supreme act of humility and self-sacrifice. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God In him, he gave all that he had. If Jesus sees this much value in the church, if Jesus sees this much value in us, shouldn't we too? See, the parable isn't just describing Jesus. It's telling us something about the kingdom of heaven, that the kingdom is here, that it is present in his church. That where the people of God are, the kingdom of heaven is because the king is there. He has buried his glory in his people. But it's not clearly visible. There are some people that are going to look and see only a field. There are going to be some people who look and see only a pearl. And they're not going to see the great value. And they're not going to see the surpassing glory. And they will pass it by for lesser treasures. 
The kingdom that is here is more valuable than money. It is more valuable than earthly treasure. It is more valuable than vacations and bigger homes and luxury and escape and fame. It is of immeasurable value if we only have eyes to see it. Jesus gave his life to embed his glory in the church, to bury his treasure in his people. And there is nothing more valuable in the entire universe. So at the end of Gulliver's travels, um, in that satire, Gulliver, after he gets kicked off the island with the horses, and he is so bitter because he has been rejected from the company of these civilized creatures, uh, he ends up getting picked up by a ship under the, uh, a captain named Don Pedro. And Don Pedro uh, is, from what we can tell, a very noble man. Uh, Gulliver shows up wearing rags and speaking nonsense about speaking horses and, and, and is just raving and, and, and is angry and is bitter. And Don Pedro feeds him and cares for him and clothes him and gives him a safe passage back to Lisbon where he, Gulliver ends up becoming a recluse, um, so determined that the entire world is full of yahoos that he will no longer associate with humankind. And, and all he saw with Don Pedro was another Yahoo. That's all he saw. A Yahoo with a little more reason than others. That's all he saw. And he ended up simply seeing himself as the last one um, abandoned among uh, the Yahoos, right? The last one who had any sense or any dignity or, or the last one who could do anything of value. Um, see, in his pride, he can only see his own glory and the brokenness of others. Swift satire is still cutting. <laughs> we fill our vision with our own glory, and all we see is the brokenness of others. And we exclude ourselves from their ruin, and they ex- we exclude, exclude them from our glory. We treat the church like that often. That's how I treated the church when I first became a believer. As if I weren't jacked up and in need of grace. As if I weren't a hypocrite as well. As if I didn't need to learn how to forgive and to experience forgiveness. As if I didn't need to learn how to relate to other broken people as a broken person. As if I didn't have to learn how to step out of the bondage of my own shame into the vulnerability and beauty of grace. We need the Spirit to open the eyes of our hearts that we might see how much we need the church. that we might come to see the riches of his glorious inheritance buried 
and these broken people of whom I'm one. We need the humility that allows us to see that, that while there is a glory in, in being one who was created in the image of God, and I can see my own glory more clearly than, than you can, there's also a ruin that came through sin, and we're all part of that glorious ruin, created in the image of God but marred by sin. And as a result, we all crave glory, and we all hurt each other. We all want ideal community, but we don't want to have to walk through the mess that is real, broken, human community. We want to experience the glory, but we don't have to approach it through grace. And we often feel very self-satisfied, self-justified in separating ourselves from the very community we desperately need. We need God to open the eyes of our hearts that we might see the glory buried in the heart of his people. The true treasure of a community that is being transformed by love, learning to forgive, growing in grace. So a few practical applications for us as we come to the end. As we pray that God might enlighten the eyes of our heart, that we might see what is the glorious and the riches of the glorious inheritance of His glorious inheritance in the saints. First, don't be seduced by lesser glories. Know that you will be. Know that, in fact, there is a continual battle for your heart, that you might be seduced by lesser glories, that you will see other things, in other words, is more valuable. That you'll think, no, that, that's worth the investment of my life. No, that is worth the investment of my time. That is worth the investment of my resources. Not that the church isn't important. I'm a follower of Jesus, and of course, the Bible talks a lot about church, and I, and I know it's important. But, but do you see the surpassing treasure of the glory of God buried in His people? Or are you seduced by lesser glories? The church is important, but not as important as my job. The church is important, but, but not as important as my, as my hobbies or my activities. The, the church is important, but not as important as my, my relationships, my family. My, my church is important, but not as important as my education or my future. See, these are all good things. But they're lesser glories and competing glories. They're, they're good things. But God hasn't buried His glory in your job. God has not buried His glory in your accomplishments or in your hobbies. God has not buried His glory in your personal experience of your personal relationships in your little home. You can experience the glory of God in all of these things. Because we were created in the image of God, and being created in the image of God means that we were created to be productive and to be in families and to pursue hobbies and to be artistic and creative and to endeavor into all these things. But God has buried His glory in the church. 
So it needs to be of primary importance to us. Listen, you guys, if the church was worth Jesus dying and rising again, it's worth the investment of your life. But Steve, we can't all become pastors, can we? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not saying you're going to make your living by serving the gospel. I feel great, great privilege that I get to, that God has given me the ability to to invest all of my energy, all of my time into the church. But just because I'm a vocational pastor doesn't mean that I wasn't, before I became a pastor, learning to value and pursue the glory of God in his people. In fact, it was that pursuit that led me to become a pastor. As God progressively opened my eyes to the beauty of what he has placed in the church and the value that there was, there was no greater thing I could invest my life into than people, having people experience that glory to a greater degree. You don't have to be a full-time pastor to orient your life around that value. You simply have to have eyes that see. I have a buddy who thought he was going to go into vocational ministry and was pursuing it in college. And as he was raising money to be a full-time um, campus worker, he found that he really enjoyed raising the money, usually the part everybody hates. He was really good at it. He was good at casting vision. He was good at, at making relationships. He was good at sales. <laughs> and he ended up becoming a salesman. That's what he does. And he's really good at it. But you know what the passion of his life is? the church. This guy works incredibly hard as a salesman. And he makes really good money, but you know what he loves to do with his money? Be generous. You know what he loves to do with his time? Help people grow. I mean, I, I, he, every time I get invited, like, like he'll be like, hey man, I'm doing this trip this summer. Why don't you come join me? And I figure out how I can make it happen. And I go show up. Invariably, there will be six or other, eight other guys there that were not randomly chosen. Like he picked each one of them specifically because he's like, he's, he can connect with him and he can connect with him and, and he's stay facing struggle that I think this guy's going to help him out with. He is continually thinking about how to help people discover the glory of the church to a deeper and greater degree, the glory of relationships, the glory of growing and being, being deepened in their relationship with God as they grow deeper in their relationship with other believers. It's his passion because he sees the glory of the treasure buried in the church. So let's not be seduced by lesser glory. Second of all, commit, don't just attend. I mean, this is just real simple stuff here, you guys. There's a sickness in uh, American Christian experience called consumer Christianity, and consumer Christianity basically teaches us to approach church the same way we approach a restaurant. I show up because I have something I want. I'm hungry for a specific experience or, or something, whatever, and, and I go to this church because I like what they serve better than what that church serves. And I show up and I consume And consumers do two things really, really well. They consume and they critique. (laughs) They consume and they critique the same way as when you go out to eat, right? 
It's like you go out to eat and you get this great meal that was cooked for you by trained people and it comes out and you're like, yeah, that was a little too salty. That was, you know, it was finely done. It's just, you know, a little too, we all become experts. You know what I'm saying? Like we're like, like we should be on the food network. We're like, we're so good at our critique and we do the same thing with church, right? Yeah, Steve was a little long-winded today. That second illustration fell a little flat. I totally didn't get the Swift thing, man. Why was he talking about Yahoo's? That was just disgusting. We show up to consume and critique instead of to be changed. We show up hoping to get, I don't know, enough fuel to carry us through the week. Just a little encouragement. That's all I need. A little help. A little, little wind at my back. that's not what it means to be part of a body. My hand doesn't just show up on Sundays and decide, I'll be Steve's hand today. It is irrevocably necessarily connected to the rest of the body. My hand needs my body and my body needs my hand. To be part of a body means more than just to show up once a week to an event. It means to be relationally, deeply connected with the rest of the body. See, the church isn't like a restaurant. It's more like a family. You don't just show up to consume and critique. When you, when you show up in a healthy family for a meal, people aren't thinking about the food. They're thinking about the other people around the table. When you show up at a, at a healthy family, the food is the lesser glory. The primary glory is the laughter. The primary glory are the hard conversations where people are lovingly speaking truth gracefully to one another. In a healthy family, the, the attraction is the love. Church, why would we ever settle for less. Why would we ever crave less? Commit. Don't just attend. Listen, you guys, getting involved is, is going to be messy and it's going to be costly. And people are going to say stupid things. And you're going to get your feelings hurt. It's going to happen. You're going to show up and say, hey, let me, let me help you out. And then people are going to treat you like a servant. <laughs> and you're going to get all offended. Because we like to act like a servant as long as we're treated with gratitude. It's going to happen. You're like, Steve, you're not selling this very well. But I'm telling you, listen. <laughs> listen. It's worth it. There are things that you need to happen in your life that will not happen in any other environment. There are changes you need to experience in your life that you will not experience on your own. There are strongholds and there are blockades in your heart that you cannot overcome or pass through on your own. 
Life change happens best in small groups where you can know and be known and love and be loved. The gathering is important. This is an important function and, 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 and activity of the local church. But if you're not relationally connected to the people in this room, you are shortchanging yourself of the experience of the church. So I'm going to encourage you. Our number one primary discipleship tool are our community groups. Small groups of people that meet in the home throughout the week. It's, it's inconvenient. It's costly. It takes time. It's, you'll be tired, and there are going to be times you don't want to go, and, and, and you're not always going to like the people you meet with. But God does incredible things when we push into community. God does incredible things when, when we value what is truly valuable. And we push into a deeper experience of grace, which, by the way, you can only experience with others. All right, so finally, serve, don't just take. God gave every believer a gift. I don't know if you've seen that in the Scripture, but every believer is given a spiritual gift. Every spiritual gift is a gift of service. When you look through the spiritual gifts, whether it's teaching or giving or generosity or the gift of helps or, or whatever it is, Every spiritual gift is actually, can only be, be functioning in the context of the church, in the context of relationships. You, you can't exercise your gift without giving because that's the way grace works. You can't experience grace without giving grace. Grace was never given to you to simply hold in this deep reservoir of personal experience. It was designed for you to receive and give and in the giving to experience it more deeply. Serve. Serve. Serve other believers. Serve in the gathering. Serve in your small groups. Serve because service is not just sacrifice, it's investment. It's going to cost you energy. It's going to cost you time. It'll cost you comfort. But what you get will far outweigh anything you give. There was a missionary once to the Alka tribe who said this. He said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I pray that the eyes of our hearts might be enlightened, that we might see the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. All right, I'm going to close in a word of prayer. Put some reflection questions up on the screen and ask you to pray. We'll share communion in a moment. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that you have given us the gift of your Son. Oh, the greatest gift ever given to mankind. The gift of love. I pray, Lord, that we might value what he values. That we might come to see as he sees. That we might recognize that as we push into our own need for privacy, our own sense of personal space, our own selfish desire for personal time, that often we are robbing ourselves. Open our eyes. Open our eyes.
that we might see as you see, that we might be motivated to gain true treasure. That a hundred years from now, we won't look back and look at a life filled with the pursuit of fool's gold. We might recognize now what is worthy of the investment of our lives. Guys, take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.